Thank you, James. God bless you, brother. Oh, good morning. morning. Wonderful to be back with you all. It was just nine months ago, I think, that I was here last, but my daughter had a soccer camp at SMU yesterday, and I thought I could visit my friends in McKinney if James would be willing to share his pulpit. So I'm glad that he did. It's a blessing to open up God's Word with you today. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Lord, we're so blessed to be here today. God, thank you for this church and all that you've done here in the last year or two since James and his family moved out here and planted it. What a blessing to see how you're working here. And God, as we turn in your word this morning, God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. God, we pray that you would encourage us in the faith and that you would strengthen our faith, that you would bless this time here today now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, when Peter penned this epistle back in the first century, there were all kinds of myths and stories embedded throughout the Roman Empire concerning a variety of man-made deities. The ancient Greeks had passed around stories for centuries concerning gods and goddesses like Zeus, Poseidon, Artemis, and Athena, just to name a few. The stories were outlandish tales of these deities' love affairs and their battles and exploits and a litany of bizarre and sinful behavior. If you've ever looked into Greek mythology, you know what I'm referring to. And unfortunately, many of the Greeks and Romans believed these cleverly devised myths. The remains of the temples that they built to these deities bear testimony to that. Well, here in 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter wants to assure his readers that Jesus' followers had not placed their faith in another man-made mythological deity like Zeus or Poseidon, whom no one had ever even seen. No, notice with me there in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Jesus was not a mythological deity. Peter, who was likely writing this epistle from a Roman prison, and who would just a short time later be put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ, says to his readers, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter would be able to tell anyone he talked to or anyone reading this epistle, we ate with Jesus. We, we broke bread with him. We, we traveled with Jesus. We heard him teach. We saw his miracles with our own eyes. We watched him heal the lame. We saw him open the eyes of the blind. We witnessed him shining with the glory of God there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. 
it was this kind of personal interaction with Jesus over the course of three years that led Peter and those first disciples to conclude that Jesus truly was the long-awaited Savior that God had promised in the Old Testament would one day come into the world and make a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled back into a right relationship with our Creator. And if you've studied Jesus' life and given any kind of serious consideration to the wealth of evidence for his life, I trust that you too have come to the same conclusion. You're convinced that Jesus is the Son of God as revealed to us in the New Testament. But of course, our conclusions regarding Jesus are often scoffed at today by atheists and critics of Christianity. I'm sure that you've noticed that there are a plethora of books, YouTube videos, websites, magazine articles, and so on, attacking Jesus. Many of them say Jesus never even existed. And if he did, his earliest followers certainly did not think that he was God. Or they say he never rose from the grave, and the Gospels contradict one another. And on and on the charges go. I'm sure you've bumped into some of them in popular culture. Magazines and documentaries on the History Channel or what have you. Well, this morning, in our time together, I'd like to respond to several of these popular attacks and objections when it comes to Jesus. And my hope is that it will encourage you in the faith, but that it will also help equip you with some ways that you can answer these objections yourself. At the end of our time of teaching this morning, I'll put a QR code up here on the screen or a website so that you can uh, access all of my notes. So I see some of you already pulling pins out and you're going to try to keep up with me. I'm just going to let you know. We're going to cover some material pretty fast here. So why don't you just chill out and um, <clears throat> just sit back and enjoy the time of teaching, knowing that everything I'm about to share with you, you're going to be able to print it all out if you'd like uh, with the QR code I'll give you here at the end. All right, the first issue I'd like to address concerns Jesus' existence. It has become increasingly popular today for atheists and critics of Christianity to suggest that Jesus of Nazareth never even existed. This claim runs rampant all over the place on the internet. I bumped into this post a while back on social media. A popular atheistic account posted this. It said, Jesus never existed. No independent historical account can prove his existence. Zero, zip, zilch, nada, nothing. Well, I bumped into that later in the day after it was posted. It already had more than 200 likes. And then you read the comments and people are like, yeah, totally. Christians are idiots. And I thought, you're an idiot. <laughs> you post that, it's, you're totally uninformed. Why would you say that? There's very good historical evidence that Jesus was a real person. Where so? Where is that evidence? Well, in addition to the 27 documents in the New Testament that tell us about Jesus' life, more than 30 non-biblical sources mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. For example, Flavius Josephus 
Flavius Josephus was a historian for the Roman Empire in the first century AD. He mentions more than a dozen individuals talked about in the New Testament, including John the Baptist, Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, and even Jesus. He mentions Jesus in a couple of places. I'll put one of his references on the screen for you. Notice what he writes. He says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good and was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. That's Flavius Josephus. First century, outside of the Bible, mentioning Jesus. A second source outside of the Bible that referred to Jesus was this man, Cornelius Tacitus. Tacitus lived from about A.D. 55 to the year 120. He was a Roman historian. He lived through the reigns of more than a half dozen Roman emperors. He's been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome, and he mentions Jesus in his work titled Annals. He writes this, Christus, Latin for Christ, suffered the extreme penalty, that's a reference to Roman crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So not only does Tacitus mention Jesus, he confirms, like Josephus did, that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus. A third extra-biblical source that mentions Jesus is this collection of writings known as the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish teachings that were passed down from generation to generation amongst the Jews and then finally organized and compiled after the destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70. Here's an excerpt that mentions Jesus. Keep in mind, this is a hostile source. Okay, it's not what they say about Jesus here is not friendly, but that makes sense. They're the ones that had him put to death. But notice what the Talmud said about him. After his death, they recorded, it said, on the eve of Passover, Yeshu, a shortened form of Yeshua, Jesus' name in the Hebrew language, was hanged. Speaking about the fact that he was hung on a cross or a tree. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, allegedly, he is going forth to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Uh, you can tell they didn't like him, right? Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, supposedly, uh, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. So note that not only does the Talmud mention Jesus here, it mentions his crucifixion. It mentions the fact that G the Jewish religious leaders desired to stone Jesus as recorded in John chapter 10. Why wasn't he stoned then? Well, because the Jews handed him over to Pontius Pilate and the Romans didn't stone people. They crucified them. But notice that it says Jesus was put to death even at the time of a particular feast, the feast of Passover, the very feast John chapter 18 tells us was going on while Jesus was on the cross. Friends, non-biblical sources like these not only verify 
Jesus existed, they corroborate more than a hundred details recorded about Jesus in the New Testament. So it's this kind of historical evidence for Jesus that has led historians and scholars today to conclude that Jesus really existed. In fact, the evidence is so compelling that even Bart Ehrman, one of the most zealous critics of the Bible alive today, agrees that Jesus was a real person. He wrote an article for the Huffington Post a few years back, and he said this. He said, with respect to Jesus, we have numerous independent accounts of Jesus' life of his life, sources that originated in Jesus' native tongue and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life. Historical sources like that are pretty astounding for an ancient figure of any kind. The claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every ground, end quote. That's by Bart Ehrman. Why did he write this article? Because he was tired of his atheistic colleagues embarrassing themselves by saying things like Jesus never even existed. He goes on to say, we shouldn't say that. Don't say that anymore. You're making us look stupid. There's, too, there's so much evidence that he was a real person. And I just laid out some of it for you here this morning. So with Jesus' existence settled, let's tackle a second challenge critics often raise, and that concerns Jesus' deity. Christians, of course, have long believed that Jesus was God incarnate, God in the flesh. Well, of course, atheists, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other critics of Christianity disagree with us on this. Muslims say that Jesus was just a man, a prophet of Allah, they say. Jehovah's Witnesses will seek to convince you on your porch that Jesus was not God, but just an angel who took on human flesh. But the disagreement doesn't stop there. These critics regularly claim that the earliest Christians never believed Jesus was God. They say that view wasn't embraced until sometime in the fourth century. Well, those who make that claim could not be more mistaken about the matter. In fact, if you're still open to 2 Peter, there in your Bibles, you might look at chapter 1. In the very first verse, Peter, one of the earliest Christians, one of the original 12 disciples, calls Jesus our God and Savior. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle John kicked off his gospel, the gospel of John, by saying the same thing about Jesus in the very first verse, that Jesus was God. The Apostle Thomas called Jesus my Lord and my God in John chapter 20, verse 28. And the Apostle Paul called Jesus God in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. That's just a small sampling of some of the verses in the New Testament that make it clear Jesus was God incarnate. And those kinds of references to Jesus' deity didn't end with the first disciples. The church fathers in the second and third century continued to affirm that same teaching. Men like Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Irenaeus, and others refer to Jesus over and over again in their writings as God. 
And another evidence that the earliest Christians believed Jesus was God comes from outside of the church, outside of Christian circles, from a man by the name of Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was the governor of Bithynia, a Roman province in northwestern Turkey from around 110 to 113. Writing around 112, he described early Christian worship practices to Trajan, the Roman emperor. Let me put a short excerpt from him on the screen for you. This is from his letter to the Roman emperor. He's seeking to bring the emperor up to speed on who the Christians are and what they're doing in his empire. So he writes to Trajan and he says this. He says, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang an anthem to Christ as who? God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deeds but to abstain from all fraud, theft, or adultery, never to break their word or deny a trust when called upon to honor it, end quote. So here we have a statement by a governor of a Roman province written around 112 stating that the earliest Christians were worshiping Jesus as God. But someone might say, well, Charlie, maybe Pliny was a Christian who was just seeking to influence Trajan to believe Jesus was God. Well, in response to that, no, Pliny was not a Christian. In fact, he goes on to tell us in this same letter that he was having the Christians tortured and put to death under his instructions. So, based on these three sources, the original writings of the apostles, their early church fathers in the second and third century, and Pliny the Younger, you can be absolutely confident that the earliest Christians believed Jesus was God in the flesh. Now, one of the reasons the earliest Christians concluded that Jesus was God incarnate was his miracles. Jesus didn't just show up and tell everybody who was God. Anybody can do that. He backed up his claims by doing things only God could do. And that brings us to the third issue I'd like to address this morning. Number three, Jesus' miracles. Of course, atheists and other critics of the Bible have a problem with Jesus' miracles. They suggest, among other things, that the early Christians just embellished their stories about Jesus with accounts of miracles in order to attract new followers. And really, it comes as no surprise that atheists try to come up with these kinds of takes on the matter uh, because they're forced by their atheistic worldview to deny Jesus' miracles. Not because there's evidence miracles can't occur, but because of their anti-supernatural bias. Their anti-supernatural bias forces them to deny Jesus' miracles. Why is that? Well, because in a universe where no God exists, nothing miraculous can ever occur, ever. So, critics of the Bible, atheists in particular, come across Jesus' miracles in the New Testament, and they say, no way. These things couldn't have happened. They must be made up. But for those of us who believe in God, we have no difficulty believing Jesus performed miracles because if Jesus was the one who spoke the universe and all of life into existence in Genesis chapter 1, then it would be no problem, for example, for him to speak life into a dead man. 
like Lazarus. That's not hard at all. God's the one who designed the human body and who created the first human out of dust. So breathing new life back into Lazarus' already in existence body wouldn't be a challenge at all for him. So our worldview as Christians doesn't um, keep us back from believing in miracles. Unlike atheists, we're free to follow the evidence wherever it leads, and we think there's some pretty compelling evidence Jesus really did perform miracles. Take, for example, the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. It is an accepted historical fact that the Christian faith, a religion built upon the preaching of the resurrection of its leader, originated in approximately A.D. 32, right in the very city of Jerusalem where Jesus had been publicly crucified and buried. Now, this in itself is a good piece of evidence that Jesus' miracles actually occurred. Why is that? Well, because a message calling people to repent and put their faith in a resurrected, miracle-working Messiah could never have gained any substantial following in Jerusalem if the people had not actually seen Jesus work miracles. The best explanation for the immediate rise of Christianity and its phenomenal growth, right, in the very city where Jesus was crucified is that Jesus really did rise from the grave and work miracles. Is it reasonable to suppose that thousands of people within those early days following Jesus' death were actually deceived into believing a man rose from the dead? I find that hard to believe. Think through this with me. I think most of you have seen JFK's assassination back in the 1960s, either on you know, TV or the internet. You're familiar with that. Question for you. How hard would it have been in the weeks following that tragic event to convince hundreds of people in the city of Dallas who were there and even saw JFK die that he came back to life after he was buried? Pretty much impossible, right? You might convince a few people, but you'd have an incredibly hard time convincing hundreds of people or thousands of people. Why is that? Why would it be so hard? Well, because people didn't rise from the grave in America in the 20th century, and they didn't rise from the grave in Israel in the first century. It's not like this was a common occurrence. Oh, another guy rose from the grave? Okay, I'll make him my Lord and Savior. No, it never happened. Unless Jesus called someone out of the grave, unless he was personally involved with a person like Lazarus. And yet, in the days immediately following Jesus' public crucifixion, thousands of Jews who lived in Jerusalem and who knew Jesus had died suddenly converted to Christianity, convinced Jesus rose from the grave. How does one explain this? Well, Luke tells us, People had seen Jesus, hundreds of them, with their own eyes. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them, appearing to people over a period of 40 days. Another line of evidence that Jesus performed miracles is the fact that the early Christians were then willing to endure great hostility telling people about Jesus' miracles. Why would they do that if they were lying? Liars lie to get out of trouble. 
or to gain some type of advantage or benefit. But what the early Christians said about Jesus didn't get them out of trouble or result in any kind of benefit. What these men said and wrote about Jesus got them in trouble. What they received was rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. That, to me, is compelling evidence that these men were telling us the truth about Jesus and his miracles. Obviously, lots more could be said about that. Let's switch gears, though, and tackle a fourth challenge critics have been bringing up lately, and that has to do with whether or not Jesus was a copycat savior. Whether or not Jesus was a copycat savior, what am I talking about? Well, there's been a video out there on YouTube and Vimeo all over the internet for the past several years. It's called Zeitgeist. I'm sure some of you have watched it, whether you remember the title of it or not. The thing went viral, uh, and it's been translated into hundreds of different languages. It's been viewed millions of times, and unfortunately, it's been wrecking havoc on people's faith. The video, if you haven't seen it, it alleges that the New Testament authors borrowed major details for Jesus' life from earlier sources, other religions that were around before the rise of Christianity. So it's not uncommon if you're sharing the gospel with someone who has seen the video to hear him say the whole story about Jesus was plagiarized from ancient Egyptian myths about Horus. Horus is the name of the mythological falcon-headed sky god worshipped in ancient Egypt. And the person who has seen Zeitgeist will often go on to tell you, if they can remember some of the details from the video, they'll go on to tell you that Horus was born to a virgin on December 25th, worshipped by three kings. He was a teacher by age 12. He had 12 disciples. His followers referred to him as the Lamb of God before he was crucified, buried for three days, and then resurrected. Sound familiar? With so many alleged details in common between Horus and Jesus, you can see why many people who've watched the Zeitgeist video have had their faith rattled, especially young people who've never even heard of Horus, don't even know where to go check out what's true or false about Horus. And the guy that made this video, it was, wasn't made by National Geographic Society or any, anything like that. It was made by a guy named Peter Joseph who walked away from the Lord many years ago and is angry now at his parents and the Christian world for, for the things he endured or whatever at a bad church. And so he put together this video. He's got this, you know, he's got this deep voice. He sounds like a narrator, you know, that could work for the History Channel or something. And, 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 and people watch this video and they think, oh my goodness, I've been totally deceived. Christianity's a fraud. Everything was plagiarized from this ancient religion in Egypt. And they walk away from the Lord. Our ministry's gotten several emails from people over the years whose kids have totally abandoned the faith after watching this 30-minute video. Well, that's unfortunate because everything on the screen there is provably false. If a person would even take the time to just read the Horus entry, it's like one page, two pages, 
in the Encyclopedia Britannica or any dictionary on ancient religions, he quickly discovered that Horus was not born to a virgin. The ancient myths say that Horus was conceived by his parents, the god Osiris there in the middle and the goddess Isis on the right. So strike the virgin birth off the list. No plagiarism there. And nowhere do the myths say Horus was born on December 25th. And even if he had been, where in the New Testament do you read of any date associated with the birth of Jesus? <laughs> Nowhere, right? We don't know what date Jesus was born on. The December 25th date originated long after the Gospels were written. In fact, it wasn't until about A.D. 336 that that date became the official date in the church to celebrate Jesus' birth, and it had nothing to do with what the gospel writers had said. Uh, so strike that. Uh, the Zeitgeist video also says Horus was adorned and worshipped by three kings after he was born. Uh, did the New Testament steal this idea, perhaps? No, the Bible knows nothing of three kings showing up at Jesus' birth or any time after. Three kings is an idea that occasionally appears on some poorly researched Christmas cards, but not in the Bible. <laughs> Notice this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1. This is the only gospel that even mentions the Magi. It says there that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi, not kings, Magi, and it doesn't even say there was three, just says Magi, from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Well, in biblical times, Magi were simply known as wise men, not kings. So strike that. The gospel writers surely aren't guilty of plagiarism there. There's also nothing in the ancient myths about Horus becoming a teacher at age 12. That was pure invention, so strike that. Nor is there anything about Horus having 12 disciples. And you can read the ancient myths yourself and... This is not hard to discover. So cross that off. And Horus was never even crucified. Crucifixion did not even exist until the Medes and the Persians invented it about six or seven hundred years before Jesus' birth. The Horus religion was around back in the 2000s and maybe 3000 BC. It's an ancient old religion. So... Um, that, that's to be crossed off the list as well. Uh, and there's no record of Horus ever being resurrected. So strike that. Friends, the charge of plagiarism, as presented in the Zeitgeist video, as it relates to Horus, completely collapses with maybe about half an hour of your own research in reputable sources. Uh, the same video that popularized the Horus nonsense goes on to suggest that the Bible's account of the virgin birth was also borrowed from the ancient religion of Mithraism. Well, I happen to know a little bit about ancient religions. I, I've taught college-level courses on world religions and cults. I've researched the ancient religion of Mithraism. And this ancient Persian religion does not say that its deity by the name of Mithras was born of a virgin. In fact, the myths say that Mithras arose spontaneously from a rock inside a cave. Does that sound like a virgin birth to you? Uh, it doesn't. Uh, the virgin birth of the Messiah was not plagiarized from any religion outside of the Bible. It was actually the fulfillment of a prophecy given in the book of Isaiah. 
Chapter 7, verse 14, 700 years before Jesus' birth. And many Bible commentators believe the virgin birth of the Messiah was prophesied as far back as Genesis chapter 3, where God seems to indicate that the coming Messiah would be born to a woman apart from a relationship with a man. So you can be confident that the gospel writers didn't plagiarize these details from ancient sources outside of the Bible. Our website, which I'll give you later, dives into the whole Zeitgeist video in a more in-depth fashion. But let's move along and consider a fifth challenge critics often bring up when Jesus is being talked about. This one has to do with alleged contradictions and errors in the gospels. Many critics of the Bible have pointed to what they believe are legitimate contradictions and errors in the Gospels as proof that these accounts of Jesus' life cannot be trusted. Well, in response to that, I will acknowledge, as every good Bible commentary does, that there are a handful of verses that can be challenging to harmonize with the other Gospels. Uh, but with a little investigation into the context of the various passages or the cultural and geographical settings in which the Gospels were written or an occasional peek into the original Greek language in which the Gospels were written in, these apparent problems are easily explained. Let me just walk you through two of them here. Uh, quickly. This first one has to do with an alleged contradiction that critics say revolves around Jesus' location when he healed a particular blind man by the name of Bartimaeus. Luke chapter 18, verse 35, says Jesus healed this blind man as he was approaching Jericho. But Mark chapter 10, verse 46, says that he healed that same man as he went out of Jericho. So, see the problem there? Critics say, well, surely one of them made a mistake. They can't possibly both be right. And that appears to be the case until you do a little investigation, maybe pull out a good Bible commentary or talk to Pastor James or someone who's researched these kinds of things. And then you learn that Ernst Sellen... A German archaeologist working on an excavation in Israel between 1907 and 1909 discovered what are called the Twin Cities of Jericho. In the first century AD, there was the old city of Jericho that had been destroyed in the book of Joshua but rebuilt in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. And there was the new Roman city, also called Jericho. In the first century, there were two locations in Israel separated by only about a mile. And they were both known as Jericho. There's old Jericho and there's new Jericho. Now, knowing that solves the dilemma. It's likely that Luke referred to one of the locations and Mark referred to the other. A plausible explanation is that the miracle took place between the two cities. Mark mentioning the city Jesus had just left. Luke mentioning the city Jesus was approaching. It's not the authors of the New Testament who made the mistake. It's the modern-day critic who's unfamiliar with Roman and Jewish geography. They're the ones that have made the mistake, not the biblical writers. Another problematic passage in the Gospels concerns Jesus' occupation. And by the way, these aren't actual photographs uh, um, of Jesus, in case you were wondering. <laughs> 
An ABC television documentary on the life of Jesus brought up this supposed contradiction sometime back, so I want to walk you through it. Uh, notice the question that people are asking about Jesus in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. They said, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So according to this passage, we learned that Jesus was a carpenter. Now keep that in mind, and let's compare that with Matthew chapter 13. This is what the ABC documentary did. They quoted both these verses. Notice this, Matthew 13, verse 54, it says, And when he, Jesus, had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Ah, oh. well, the critics over at ABC on the lookout for ways to discredit the Gospels around Christmas time just in time to wish you a Merry Christmas, uh, say that the Gospels contradict, contradicted one another here. Why is that? Well, one says Jesus was the carpenter, and another says Joseph was the carpenter. So which was it? Was Jesus the carpenter, as Mark tells us, or was Joseph the carpenter, as Matthew tells us? Well, you don't need to be a rocket scientist uh, to figure this out. They were both carpenters. <laughs> like, I'm like, who put this documentary together? You guys, this is embarrassing. <laughs> It was very common in the first century for young men to follow in the footsteps of their father. And apparently Jesus did that with Joseph. And they were both carpenters. The crowd of people knew that. And they were asking both questions. Some were saying, hey, isn't this just a carpenter? Others were saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? So there's no contradiction here at all. Critics of the Bible would be wise to pull out a good commentary on the Bible and... Um, do a little reading before they launch these kinds of attacks on the Bible. These kinds of solutions, two of which I just briefly walked you through, are readily available today to people um, if they're willing to do a little research. And on our website, we've even got a Bible difficulty section. We walk you through the solutions to more of these if you're interested. But let's consider another challenge critics often bring up when talking about Jesus, and that concerns number six, the supposed late authorship of the Gospels. The supposed late authorship of the Gospels. I was on a flight a while back from San Diego, I believe, to, yeah, I forget where I was going. Oh, Philadelphia. I was going to Philadelphia to do some teaching out there. And I got in a conversation with a lady and her son seated next to me on the flight. And I came to learn that she had abandoned her Christian faith some 20 years ago. And now at the age of 40, had completely rejected Christianity and her religious upbringing and all of that. And I asked her why she doubted the Bible now. And this is what she said. She said, the Gospels were written down 300 years after Jesus lived. Well, what should we say to that? I'm sure you've heard that before. The Gospels were written so long after Jesus lived, they couldn't possibly be trustworthy accounts of his life. How might we respond to that? Well, I think a lot of Christians make a bit of a tactical error in conversations with non-believers when they hear a statement like this. Oftentimes we go into defensive mode and we immediately disagree with the person. 
and say, well, no, that's not right. They weren't written that long ago. Well, when you respond like that, you've immediately put the burden of proof back on you now. And you've got about five seconds to remember what you happen to know about that subject. <laughs> I like to keep the burden of proof right on the person making the claims as long as possible. And maybe help them see that they don't know what they're talking about. And you can often do that by asking simple questions. How did you come to that conclusion? What evidence do you have? Or what, what evidence are you familiar with that, that's led you to believe that? And so that's what I did with this lady. I said, who told you that? In other words, how did you come to that conclusion? Is that a perfectly fair question? It is. You have to watch your tone, right? You don't throw up your hand and say, well, who told you that? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> no. Just in love, in humility, right? So who, who told you that? Now, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised by her response at all. She, just, she said, weren't they? She went from sounding like an authority on the subject to someone completely unsure of what she had just stated, all in response to one question. Well, that revealed to me that she really didn't know why she believed what she believed, and it exposed in a loving way to her as well that she didn't really know what she was talking about. And that gave me the opportunity then to share what I know about the dating of the New Testament with her, and this is what I shared with her. I said, well, you know, there's no evidence, actually, that any of the New Testament books was written down 300 years after Jesus. And there's good evidence most of the New Testament was written down before A.D. 70. And then I gave her a couple quick examples. For example, I said the New Testament scriptures are absolutely silent regarding the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. The destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in the first century was one of the most significant events in all of Jewish history. Flavius Josephus, an eyewitness to the event, says the Roman soldiers destroyed the Jewish temple as well as the entire city of Jerusalem. In the process, Josephus says 1.1 million people died and that the Romans carried away 97,000 people as prisoners. Wow, that's quite an event. Well, the silence of the New Testament authors regarding this event has led many Bible scholars to, to, to conclude that the Gospels must have written, been written prior to that event. Let's imagine that you go over to a friend's house later this afternoon, maybe to watch a baseball game, and you plop down there on their comfy couch, waiting for the game to get started, and waiting for some friends to show up, and you notice there on the coffee table that there's a book addressing the history of New York City. So having a few minutes to spare, you, you flip through the whole book. And by the time you get to the end, you realize there wasn't a single reference, a single chapter, a photograph, nothing, related to the destruction of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. Question for you. Could you then confidently conclude that the book had to have been published prior to that infamous date? You certainly would. No book addressing the history of New York City would leave that event out post 9-11. Well, we think the same is true with the New Testament. 
its silence regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is a strong indicator that the New Testament was largely completed before A.D. 70. Another indicator most of the New Testament was completed before A.D. 70 centers around the, the deaths of Peter and Paul. We know from the writings of the church fathers that Paul was put to death around A.D. 64 and Peter a year later. And though the deaths of other prominent Christians are mentioned and talked about in the New Testament, the deaths of these two apostles, not a single verse. Not mentioned anywhere. That suggests that the New Testament was largely completed before these two, two disciples were put to death. Now, why do I say mostly completed before AD 70? Well, because we know the book of Revelation was written about uh, A.D. 95 or so, okay? After A.D. 70, after the destruction of the temple. Why didn't the book of Revelation then mention the destruction of the Jewish temple? Well, here's why. Because the book of Revelation is not about past events. It's about future events. And so we wouldn't expect to see mention of it in the book of Revelation. All right, let's address one last challenge critics bring up when talking about Jesus. This one has to do with number seven, other alleged gospels. Other alleged gospels. Critics of Christianity commonly say that we really can't know the truth about Jesus because the early Christians purposely left out other writings, other gospels about Jesus from the New Testament. What might we say to that challenge? Well, I will acknowledge that there were writings circulating in the years following Jesus' life that do mention Jesus and that were left out of the New Testament. So that raises the question, why did Christians leave those writings out of the Bible? Well, the short answer is this. They never belonged in the Bible. They never belonged in the Bible. When the so-called Gospel of Thomas and other Gospels purportedly written by Judas, Philip, and Mary Magdalene started appearing on the scene long after these persons died, Christians recognized them for what they were, pseudo-Gospels that were uninspired, spurious writings. They realized these writings were not written by Thomas and the others, but by false teachers who attached the disciples' names to their writings, seeking to influence Christians with their unbiblical and even heretical ideas. Scholars have determined that every one of these so-called gospels that were left out of the New Testament originated in the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., long after Jesus, Thomas, Mary Magdalene, Philip, and Judas walked the earth. So that was strike one against their inclusion. What's that strike? Their late arrival. They came on the scene too late to have been written, been written by Thomas and these others. Strike two was the internal evidence, evidence within the writings that gave them away as fakes. For example, consider these outlandish words that the so-called Gospel of Thomas tries to put into the mouths of Peter and Jesus. Let me put it on the screen for you. Peter supposedly says this to the disciples and to Jesus. He says, make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. <laughs> Let's just pause there for a second. Let me, let me have your attention. Don't, don't read ahead. 
Now you want to read ahead because I know human nature. But um, can you imagine if the Gospel of Thomas was in our New Testament canon? And, and this just happened to be the place, you know, that Pastor James landed on as he's working his way verse by verse through the Bible on Mother's Day weekend. We got to teach it. It's there. <laughs> no. Aren't you glad? Does that sound like anything Peter or Jesus? I mean, this is like, it's crazy. Make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. Now, you think that's bad. It gets totally worse. It goes downhill from here. Some of you are already nodding your head because you're right ahead. But okay. So Jesus said, look, look, Pete, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. That's in the Gospel of Thomas, the so-called Gospel of Thomas. How heretical is that? I'm glad the early Christians had the discernment to read that and say, that's not going in the Bible. <laughs> Thomas never would have said that. Jesus never would have said that. But it gets worse. Well, it can't get worse from that. I mean, that's pretty bad. But let me just put up two more quotes from the Gospel of Thomas. This is another one. Jesus said to them, if you fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves. And if you pray, you will be condemned. And if you give to charity, you will harm your spirits. How contrary is that to New Testament teaching? Jesus actually encouraged us to fast and to be generous with, with those in need. He taught us to pray. But not here in the Gospel of Thomas. Whoever wrote this is trying to get us to not fast, not pray, and not be generous with those in need. One more. Jesus said, lucky. <laughs> it it self-destructs right there. That one word. Like, Where have you ever seen the word lucky in the Bible? From Genesis to Revelation, you will never see the word lucky. Okay? <laughs> Get out your green leaf clover. Your, your rabbit's foot. Okay, so Jesus says, supposedly, lucky is the lion that the human will eat so that the lion becomes human. And foul is the human that the lion will eat and the lion still will become human. I had to read that like five times. I'm like, what, what in the world? Lions can become humans? <laughs> so it was this kind of just bizarre, outrageous stuff that gave these writings away as fakes. The Christians who were widely familiar in the second and third centuries with the genuine teachings of Jesus and the apostles knew that these were not the kinds of things Jesus or the disciples ever taught. And so this so-called gospel and a few others were purposely left out of the New Testament. And I'm so glad the Christians had the discernment to leave those books out. Friend, if you've placed your faith in the Jesus revealed to us in the four authentic Gospels, you have not followed cleverly devised myths, as atheists and skeptics say. No, there's good evidence that Jesus was a real person and that the Gospels are trustworthy records of his life. And this is wonderful news because the four authentic Gospels contain the greatest news you could ever hear. The news that 2,000 years ago, your maker, God in the flesh, 
out of his great love for you, suffered and died on a cruel wooden Roman cross to take the punishment for your sins so that you could be forgiven, saved from eternity in hell, and brought back into a right relationship with your maker. But of course, Jesus rose from the grave three days later, and today he offers all of humanity, including you, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the free gift of everlasting life. What a gracious offer God has made humanity. How do you receive that gift? Jesus said, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. God's done all the hard work. He just wants you now to place your faith in Jesus. And you can do that today. You can call out to him in prayer before you walk out of this place and just pray something like, God, thank you for loving me. Please forgive me for my sins. I renounce them and turn away from them. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ today to save me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. If you need to get right with God, do it today. For the rest of you who have already done that, I encourage you to continue in the faith and be on the lookout for where God wants to use you. The time could be short before our Lord, that trumpet blasts and we're called up to be with him in glory. Let's get the gospel out to as many people as we can while we still have time. Be in prayer about that. God, use me. Give me boldness. Who, who should I share with? Who can I, who can I give a book to? Who can I point to an, you know, an article? We, we, there's, there's so many ways that we can get the truth out to people today. But you won't do it if, unless you're concerned about their salvation. And if you're not concerned, be in prayer about that. God, change my heart. Help me to be broken over the, the fate of my non-believing friends and family members and coworkers. God's got you strategically placed in certain places where Pastor James and myself will never have access to. And he wants to use you there to be a light. So be in prayer about that. Amen? Amen. All right, I told you I was going to give you a QR code if you'd like to access all of the notes. Just about everything I shared with you today. Uh, is in a transcript form there on our website. It's at alwaysbeready.com. That QR code, though, will take you right to the actual notes for today's teaching. If you don't have a phone handy, you can just go to alwaysbeready.com. We've got an alphabetical menu there. You can scroll down to the J's and click on Jesus, Evidence for Jesus. Um, I'll also highlight a few resources that I have at my book table on your way out. Oh, were some of you not done? Sorry. Let me go back. You got five seconds. There we go. <laughs> okay. On your way out, if you stop by my book table, you'll see some books. One Minute Answers to Skeptics. I give concise ways of answering atheists' top 50 objections to God and the Bible. Uh, archaeological evidence for the Bible. It's got more than 100 color photographs in it of archaeological discoveries that help to verify details in the Bible. Uh, I just recently released part three in my Dakota Knox series. These are for the teenagers in your life. 
They integrate evidence for the Bible, evidence for God, into fast-paced, action-packed novels that revolve around teenage characters. So if you've got some teens in your life. Uh, another book is this book. It's called Apologetics Quotes. It's a collection of about 500 of my favorite quotes by leading defenders of the faith. It's got a subject index in the back. You can pull up a quick quote on just about any topic by C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, and others. And then you'll also see that we've got 34 DVDs out there on the table, different topics, presentations that I give in churches around the country. We know that most of you ditched your DVD player years ago. <laughs> so we have all of those available on a little USB flash drive that you can stick into your television or computers. So I thought I'd highlight that resource as well. Let's go ahead and pray, and we will close with a song. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, for this time, we've been able to open up your word together. And God, we're thankful to be reminded today that we haven't followed cleverly devised myths and fables, but that there's a wealth of good, intellectually satisfying evidence for Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for your mercy, the forgiveness that you've shown, the, the free gift of everlasting life that you've offered to any person who's willing to place their faith in Jesus, God. And Lord, we do pray this morning for our friends and family members, coworkers who don't, don't yet know you in a personal saving way. God, we ask for their salvation today. Lord, we pray that you would convict them of their sin. We pray that you would open their eyes and help them to see their need for a savior and that you would use us and others in their lives. God, we don't want to keep the gospel to ourselves. We want to be bold, courageous ambassadors of Christ. And so Lord, we pray that you would use us for the furtherance of the gospel in this generation. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to be in prayer about ways to get it out to people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share with you today. Take care.